This is your Kick-Ass Life Podcast, episode number 192 with guest Carly Benson. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Ask Kickers, welcome to another episode of the podcast. As always, I am so grateful that you are here. And I hope this new year has been treating you well now that we are just a little bit into January. And speaking of, if you are listening to this on the day that this podcast comes out, first of all, thank you for being that loyal. And it is January 9th. Today is the last day that I am doing this thing to be able to give back to a charity that means so much to me. If you have read all of or most of my new book, How to Stop Feeling Like Shit, I would be so appreciative if you would go over to Amazon and leave an honest review. For every Amazon review of my new book, I am going to give $10 to Best Buddies International, which is a charity that means so much to me. They are a company that helps people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. I left the link over in the show notes if you want to read more about them. We already have a lot of reviews over there already. I'm super excited to be able to give back to this charity and I would love your help to do that. Thank you so much for those of you who have already done it. I am so incredibly appreciative. So I'm on tour, y'all. This month is crazy for me. Thank you for those of you who came out to Brooklyn to kick off my tour at the book signing over there at Powerhouse Arena. This coming weekend on January 12th, I am going to be in Chicago in the city at Women and Children First. And from there, I am headed to to San Diego and then to Portland and then to Greensboro and then to Virginia. I'm not going to start saying the dates because I don't have them right in front of my face (laughs) and I don't want to give you the wrong day. But if you're going to be in or around any of those cities that I mentioned, head on over to yourkickasslife.com slash 192 to grab the links for those. I would love to be able to see you over there. Also, y'all, I am so excited to get started on January. That sounded like I was like, doing a cheer or something or rap some beastie boys get ready because this ain't funny my name's mike d and i'm about to get money that's scary i know (laughs) words to many many beastie boys songs that's not what i came here to talk about i wanted to tell you about the book study that is coming out January 22nd, if you have a copy of my book and you have not signed up yet for the free book study, please head on over to the show notes. The direct link to sign up for that is there. And starting on January 22nd, we are going to go chapter by chapter into this book because I know there is a lot of information in there. I do not want you to just like get this book and have a collect desk or read it and not take any action at all. So I'm doing this for free for y'all for four weeks starting very soon. So jump on over there and sign up. There's already so many women that are ready to get into the Facebook group where we're going to be doing most of the work and I cannot wait to see you. Thank you all so much for supporting this book. I'm just barely underway in my book tour and it has been so great so far. So many moving parts, but at the end of the day, this is, I know what I'm here to do and hopefully this book has been helpful for you and I'm ready to help you even more in this book club. Today is a recovery episode. We are kind of headed towards the end of the 10 series that I do in each recovery season. And this conversation I had with Carly is just so great. I am so grateful to have these amazing conversations with women in recovery and the stories are so different, but at the same time, they're all the same. So thank you so much for those of you who have emailed me and left me messages about how these stories are impacting you. It is absolutely one of my favorite things to do is to talk about recovery. Before we get into it, just something real quick about Carly. Carly Benson works as a certified life coach and yoga instructor specializing in sobriety and faith coaching and has been sober from alcohol and cocaine since August 17th, 2008. So without further ado, here is Carly. 
Hi, Carly. Thanks so much for being here. Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. I, I, yeah, I am too. I'm always excited for anyone that comes on the podcast. Obviously, I love talking about all things personal development. And especially right now in the series, we're talking about recovery and addictions. And I like to start every episode with my guest telling us your story. So tell us your drinking story. And if you could tell us the point where you knew that you needed to walk the path of sobriety and recovery. Oh gosh. So I'll try to give you the uh, cliff notes version. Of course, you know, I started drinking at a really young age. I moved from Dallas, Texas to Naples, Florida, right when I was starting high school. And to me, that was like filed away in my system as a traumatic event. Um, Because I was kind of like a shy girl. I never raised my hand in class. I kind of was like very reserved. And so moving into this new situation where I knew nobody and I was going to have to not be shy if I wanted to make friend like was terrifying to me. So when I moved, let's see, I was about, I think I was 15 and I met one of the football players and he became my boyfriend. And so I started hanging out with that whole crew. And like on the weekends we would drink beer and then we would smoke weed. And so at first it kind of started out as like, just the cool kids. That's what they did. Not really like a peer pressure thing, more of like a curiosity thing, Mm -hmm. but I could hang with the boys, you know? So that was, you know, and then all of a sudden I wasn't the shy girl anymore, like alcohol and weed and like being in the party scene sort of made me feel connected in a way that I hadn't before. And so it was weird. It like made me come to life as what I thought in my mind, that was the story that I made up about it. And so, you know, I went on then to, really start partying hard. Like before I went away to college, I had already done ecstasy and mushrooms and acid and all kinds of stuff. I think I was just like a bored person in Mm -hmm. Naples because it's a sleepy beach town. There really wasn't much to do. And I started hanging out with that crowd who was curious, you know? And so I actually, looking back now, got into a really bad car accident when I was 15 as well. I was driving on my learner's permit and I won't go into the whole story, but basically I was on my way to spring break with my parents and best friend. I was driving. My mom yelled at me from the back seat and I flipped the car Mm -hmm. five times on the highway. And it was like so traumatic for me. And I did not know how to process that. And I can connect the dots now that I really started turning things up as far as drinking and partying and trying drugs after that which at the time I didn't know that's what I was doing. But looking back and knowing what I know now about trauma and how it's related to addiction, it makes perfect sense. And so that sort of set me off to the races. I went away to college, kind of went on to just be like a standard binge drinker mm-hmm. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and weed smoker. And then when I was a senior in college, I started doing cocaine. And that was what gripped me. And, you know, like what was standard partying for a college person became like, it just gripped me, you know, it became my lifestyle. And so like leading out of college for many, many years, I became addicted to cocaine, you know, so I still had an unhealthy relationship with alcohol, but my main problem was the cocaine. Like I so couldn't, did you, wait, I have a question for you. So did you finish yeah. college and graduate and like there yep. were, you didn't like flunk out or anything like that? Oh man, I had straight A's. I was like, I graduated with like a Mm 3.9. That was the thing. It was like, I went to class. I studied like, even though I would take tests high sometimes, you know, Mm -hmm. and it, to me, school came really easily. So yeah, I I was like a high functioner from the get go. You know, we can get into that too a bit more, but like that fueled the fire too. Cause it was like, Oh yeah, this is a breeze. I got this, you know? And Mm -hmm. so it never made me question my drinking or partying. So yeah, I went on, I graduated college. I got a job, like corporate America, all of that stuff throughout like working and all of that stuff. I was still partying and I was still doing cocaine. And it was like this thing where every time I went out, I had to have it. I had to get it. And it wasn't just like a little bump here and there. It was like, I was staying up till 10 o'clock in the morning, every weekend, Mm -hmm. blowing lines and drinking vodka out of the bottle. And quite frankly, priding myself on the fact that I was a weekend warrior and, you know, I could drink anybody under the table. And the answer was, yes, what is the question (laughs) kind of, you know, mentality. And that worked for a while. And it was fun for a while. But then there was a turning point where I just, I started to get massive anxiety and panic attacks. Like my cocaine calm down started to like 
intertwine into like my normal life where I would be like sitting at my desk at work and start panicking, like as if I was coming down in the moment, but I hadn't done anything at the time. And that started to freak me out because I was like, what is going on? Like, you know, I remember having my first panic attack at work and having to go into my boss's office and be like, something's wrong with me. I don't know what's wrong. And like, she ran, she took me to like the emergency room. Mm -hmm. We didn't, I didn't, I thought something was wrong. I thought I was having a stroke or something, Mm -hmm. you know, like I don't know if you've ever had a panic attack, but it is, it's terrifying. You don't Um, know what's happening. It's terrifying. And you can very well think that you're dying. Yeah. I'm like, I'm having a heart attack. Something's wrong. I didn't know. And so I was diagnosed with anxiety and panic disorder, but I still kept drinking. I still kept using cocaine. I went through a breakup and that really sent me in a downward spiral. I had been with this person for four years. We were living together, but it was one of those things where it was like, this isn't going anywhere. We're just roommates sort of thing. And so nothing bad happened. It was just like an amicable split up. But at the same time, this was like, I was letting go of that little fairy tale story that I had made up in my mind and it sent me in a downward spiral. And so I started partying like crazy. Like I was drinking and using Coke almost every day at that point. And I went on for a while like that. So in, let's see, 2008, August 17th, 2008 is when I got sober. But throughout that whole year, there was like kind of a buildup that year of just like little series of unfortunate events, like nothing crazy, which I always say it's a miracle that I never got a DUI or arrested or in any real trouble, but just little things. Well, not even little, but like I went away for my birthday in March of that year and did every drug in the book and basically OD'd that weekend. And it was very That's scary. That's kind of an unfortunate event. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Not really a little thing, but I mean, to me, I was like, you know, it got my attention for like three days, you know, and then I was like, oh, I'm fine. And all my friends after that weekend were like, you need to calm down. We're worried about you. This is not normal partying. Like this is scary. You know, you need to slow down. And at first I listened and I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. You know? And, uh, then I went away in May on a girl's trip to Las Vegas, which is actually ironically where I live now. And at the time I had come from Florida and somehow managed to lose or get my wallet stolen on the plane. And so by the time I like arrived at my destination, I realized my wallet was missing and I just went off into like a cocaine oblivion the whole weekend. Cause I was pissed that my wallet was gone and ditched my friends and, you know, just was very selfish. And after that weekend, all my closest girlfriends were like, you are so selfish. Like we don't want to hang out with you anymore. And that really hurt my feelings, but it didn't make me stop yet, which leads me into, and there was other stuff that happened along those ways um, along that, you know, year, but that leads me into August 17th, 2008, where, you know, those seeds had been planted throughout that year, you know? And so I kind of was having that voice in my head, but I wasn't really ready to like acknowledge it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, I kind of had the voice in my head, like, okay, maybe you need to look at your relationship with cocaine and alcohol, but I was such a high functioning person. Like I went to work, I paid my bills, I went to the gym, you know, from the outside, nobody really knew that on the inside, I was just like riddled with anxiety. And I had tried everything by that point. I was like, okay, I'll only drink wine or I won't drink hard alcohol or maybe I'll just drink beer. Like I liked Blue Moon and everything that I tried, like just was not working. Like me trying to moderate and control it was just pissing me off even more. Cause then I'm like, damn it, you did it again. Mm -hmm. You know, like this thing, you know, you're trying to control. It's not working. I would say I'm only going to happy hour and happy hour would turn into like sunrise. And so that's exactly what happened the last night that I drank and used cocaine. I said, I was only going to happy hour. I had a couple glasses of wine and a happy hour. And I was off to the freaking races, just like normal, trying to find an eight ball, trying to find somebody to do it with me. And I did. And I just remember like standing in this kitchen with this stranger guy that I don't even remember his name. And, but he wanted to do Coke with me and drink all night. So we hung out and I was, you know, just standing there. I was out of, you know, drugs and it's nine o'clock in the morning. I'm like chain smoking cigarettes. There's nowhere for me to sleep. I shouldn't be driving home. I'm starting to panic. And I just remember having this thought in my head, like, what 
are you doing? Like, Mm -hmm. why do you keep doing this? Like what, why can't you just be normal? You know? And I panicked, I drove home. I shouldn't have, I got home and just, I tried everything. Like I tried to take the hot shower. I tried to drink the vodka. I tried to chain smoke, like, and nothing was working. Like I just, my, in my mind, I was just panicked and knew, like, it was just hitting me that this is not okay. It was the first real time that I kind of was admitting to myself that I needed to get some help. Like this has to change. I was crying. I was kind of like delirious. I actually look back now and realize I was having delirium tremens that day. Cause I was like hallucinating. Wow. And I had a guy friend who I was really close with, who I partied with a lot and he got sober. So he's two months ahead of me in sobriety. And I called him that day, just crying. And I'm like, I don't want to live this way anymore. Like, how did you do it? I'll do anything. And I'm crying. And he's like, you know, calms me down and we talk about it. And this was the first time I admitted out loud that I had a problem Mm -hmm. and I needed to fix things. He kind of talked me into going to AA, which is a whole other story. Um, and we can get into that too. And I got off the phone with him and it just hit me and I started crying again. And I don't know, something came over me that day. I, you know, I wasn't like a religious person. I didn't, it wasn't that I didn't believe in God. I just didn't have time for that. I was just a party girl, you know, Mm -hmm. I didn't even know what that meant. And something though came over me that day. And I literally got down on my hands and knees and just started praying in my bedroom. Like I, I just was like, you know what, God, like I can't do this anymore. And I, I clearly can't stop on my own. Like I need help. And if you're real, you have to help me because I can't live this way anymore. Like I'm tired. I just, I just prayed, you know, it was like, I was praying for a miracle and literally this just wave of calmness kind of came over me after that. And I never drank or did cocaine from that day forward. Like it was, that was it. It was just boom. Like, so to me, I was granted a miracle in that moment is what you know, kind of my story, the foundation of my story is that there was just no way that I did that on my own, you know? Mm -hmm. So my sobriety story is a very like spiritual experience, which doesn't happen for everybody. But the more I talk to people happens to a lot of people. It was just, I surrendered. I was like, I cannot do this anymore. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I do not want to live my life this way. Like there just has to be something better. And sure enough, there was. Oh my gosh. That's so interesting. Thank you for sharing all of that. I related to so much of what you had to say. And, you know, I think that, you know, the circumstances just look a little bit different, probably for a lot of people listening personally, cocaine for me, I can probably count on two hands, the amount of times that I've done it. And I don't know how this must be some kind of miracle, but it was one of those things that I loved it so much that I knew I probably shouldn't do it a lot. Don't touch that. Yeah. It's so funny. Yeah. A lot of people have that happen. I had other things that I was relying on for addictions and, and mostly during that time where I did cocaine, it was when I was heavily into my love addiction. So I, I just think I just didn't have room for that addiction at the moment. I'm like, yeah, you can put put on a waiting list cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. I've actually talked to several people who've told me that, like I tried it and I loved it. And I knew that if I did it again, I was going to be in trouble. And for me, it was the total opposite. It was like, I loved it and I couldn't get enough of it. Like it was just, I felt that way when I would do it, I would, Oh, and if it was around, forget it. Like I Mm -hmm. was the one that did it all. And I think too, I had a health condition. I had high blood pressure at the time, chronic hypertension, which has miraculously healed itself. And that's a whole nother story. But I thought that that would not be a good mix. Like I thought that I would, that my heart might explode if I, if I really got too much into it. So I guess I cared about myself enough to to just rely on drinking and sex and love and all of that. But (laughs) all the other good addictions, all the other great addictions that I I was so familiar and comfortable with. But there was a couple things that jumped out at me that you said, which I guess they could kind of overlap. So I'm going to back way up into your story. When you talked about the car accident and having this, this traumatic event that you feel Mm -hmm. like kind of sparked your addiction. And I, I find that I've talked to many women and this is more of like when I, when I, if they're clients of mine and I hear their story and they struggle with their drinking and most, if not all of them have some kind of unresolved you know, if they don't want to call it trauma, it's some kind of grief or moment in time that they have not processed. And so Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think just cause it happened when I was 15, like I did not have any emotional intelligence at that time. You know, like when you're 15, you don't know how to process anything. And it was interesting because, I mean, this is a really traumatic event. Like my mom and my dad and my best friend were all in the car and we flipped on the highway five times and it landed on the passenger side every time. Then it, the last time it flipped, it landed upside down. We were spinning like a top for like 200 yards. So the way that looked when the car stopped moving was I crawled out the back. I thought the car was going to blow up. I had burn marks on my shoulder and my hand from like dragging on the, Mm -hmm. on the ground. My dad was already out of the car. Somehow he had like scraped his Achilles tendon, but that was his only real injury. And our stuff was just everywhere. I just remember cars stopping and people coming up to me. And I just like, Uh, you know, and so then because the car landed on the same side, the passenger side was like not even a foot tall. And my mom and my best friend were stuck in the car. Like we had to get them cut out of the car and my best friend back of her head was wedged inside the frame of the car. She had to get stitches. My mom like broke and severed a finger. It was bad. We all went to the hospital. I mean, it was a very trauma. And I thought, you know, I'm like, Oh my God, this is my fault. I almost killed my whole family and my, like my friend. And like, it just, I did not know how to process that Mm -hmm. at the time. You know, I just wanted to make it go away. And I remember getting back and, like none of us really knew how to talk about it. Cause then my mom obviously was on the other side thinking maybe it was her fault. Cause she kind of yelled at me from the back seat. Oh. And then it was like, my best friend was having her own story of like, okay, my parents are telling me to like sue the insurance company for damages. And it was just this whole thing. Like, I didn't want to talk about it. I remember my parents to bring it up. They even actually sent me to like the guidance counselor at school and I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. And I, you know, I had a boyfriend at the time and I want to talk about it with him. So I just started drinking, you know, cause I just wanted to make it go away. I, you know, like didn't know anything about therapy or any of that until I got sober. And so I didn't even realize that that was like the underlying or one of the underlying things in my addiction, you know, or how like it kind of catapulted me into it. And I'm not saying that's the only reason, but I know that was there. And yeah, it was definitely unresolved, mm-hmm. massive grief and trauma. And I remember having nightmares about it. And I remember also just like not wanting to talk about it because, you know, I mentioned I was a very shy girl, you know, like if I got called on in class, my face would turn red. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't know how to like even talk about normal stuff in front of people, let alone how I was feeling. So, and it's true because there's a lot of people that I've worked with, you know, I do coaching one-on-one too. And that's a really big thing is just unresolved trauma. And I think, you know, a lot of people hear that word trauma and they think it has to be something like what I'm explaining as a a massive car accident or like a, a a dangerous situation. And and trauma doesn't even have to be, there's all different kinds of trauma. It doesn't have to be some dangerous life-threatening situation. It could just be, like I said, me moving from Dallas to Florida was traumatic for me. You know, there's all different kinds of things and, you know, our body keeps the score. It remembers everything and it kind of gets filed away. And I think, you know, trauma can be in most cases, a precursor to addiction. So, you know, I totally agree. And I'm glad that you elaborate a little bit on that story. And for anyone listening, I think trauma is from what I understand, trauma is anything that happens in your life where you do not have the skills to cope with it in a healthy way. At that time, you do not have the skills to process it. And it was like pretty obvious for you. You didn't even want to talk about it. And I, I think for some people, maybe it's not the right moment, right? When it happens to talk about it just, you know, food for thought on that part. But Mm -hmm. I I think, yeah, I think a lot of us reserve trauma for people who have been abused or in wars or these really horrible, egregious situations and circumstances. And that is, I have come to find out it's not, it's not the case. I went through a really awful divorce and that was traumatic. And, And I have a similar experience. I noticed like, you know, when I got sober, And I started to really look back at the timeline of my addictions and the way I was behaving throughout, probably from the time I was, um, you know, like your age that you were describing from the around the age of 15 until I got sober when I was 36. That's a long time, (laughs) 21 years. And when I look back at that, 
when it really got bad was when I had like a two year period where I, a few things happened. I got pregnant when I was my senior year of high school and did not mm-hmm. have anyone. The only adult that knew about it was my high school cheerleading coach and then my boyfriend at the time who later became my first husband. And I didn't know what to do. And I wished that I had my mom to talk to about it. And I didn't. And I, I made the, I made the decision reluctantly to have an abortion and never processed all of the feelings around that. Then my parents got divorced and Mm -hmm. I didn't even know that they were, (laughs) their marriage was struggling. My dad checked himself into rehab for alcoholism and God rest his soul. He had 20 something years of sobriety when he died last year. And then also I was date raped, not that long after that. So it's like all these things happened and I didn't like you, like I didn't know how to cope with any of that. It took me almost 20 years to even admit that the, that what had happened to me was, you know, pretty non-consensual sex. And yeah, I, I did. I wanted it. Like, I love that you said, like, I just wanted it all to go away. That's exactly yeah. how I felt. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I'm so glad you brought that up. Cause those, I mean, some of those things like placed a role in, in a lot of different people's addiction stories. Like yeah. same thing. I was in an unhealthy relationship with my boyfriend in high school and I didn't know any better. Like we would fight, he would throw me against the wall, like spit in my face. And I didn't know that wasn't normal, you know? Mm-hmm. And I went on to have non-consensual sex in, in college and thought that it was my fault cause I was yeah. blacked out, yeah. you know? And so, yeah, there's all kinds of different things that happen in a traumatic sense. And like when they're happening, we don't necessarily realize that that's what's happening. And then especially if you're if you're layering drinking on top of it, you definitely don't realize kind of what's going on, you know. So, yeah, it's it's uh, it's interesting because, you know, now that. I have nine years now of recovery. I've done a lot of work and it's so much easier for me to identify things and take a look at things for what they were Mm -hmm. when at the time I wasn't able to clearly see it. And I just wanted to drink and get high and not talk about it. And now I like geek out on stuff like this, you know? (laughs) Yeah. You know, you're a personal development junkie when, and I, and I think that it takes a while, you know, for anyone listening, it takes a while, I think to get to that place where you you uncover something to work on and you get kind of excited about it. And and I think it's still from personally, I still get really uncomfortable around it, but it's still, you know, for instance, when we're full disclosure, when we're recording this, what's happening right now in our world is all of the Hollywood allegations of sexual harassment and, and sexual assault. And it's, it's a big deal and it's a very complicated issue, yeah. one that I don't want to dive too far in, but I personally have been hugely triggered by it. And just over the weekend, I was reading article after article of really smart, brave women who are not, it's not telling this, you know, talking about what happened from a gossip point of view, but they're talking about just really smart topics around it's just very eloquently speaking about how collectively we as women have been treated and how we feel about it. And I'm consuming all of this knowledge. And there was a point yesterday where I went in my bedroom and pulled, shut the door and I pulled the blanket over myself. And I just was like, I cannot deal with this right now. It was so, I feel like old wounds have been ripped open and they are bleeding. And I need, I just told my husband, I'm like, I need like an hour to just go lay down and, and just go and feel this because it's extremely triggering and all that to say before I would have just started drinking. Right. To make oh, it go yeah. Away. Oh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I'm so glad you brought that up, too, because obviously I've been seeing all the stuff about me, too. And I haven't written about it yet because I not because I feel super triggered or I'm upset, but I just like I don't know for so long. I thought my experiences with those kind of situations, I always thought they were my fault because at the time I was drinking, you know? And so I don't have the language yet to like express how I'm feeling, but yeah, it is, it's extremely triggering as as for a lot of people. And it's interesting that, you know, now your coping mechanism is to go get a fuzzy blanket and make a blanket for it. Right. You know, whereas before it was like, okay, let me just go get hammered and not think about this. Well, and to talk about it too, because it can be, and especially as alcoholics and, you know, addicts, we can tend to isolate. And I I don't think that's helpful either. And I talk to my friends about it when I'm ready. It's sometimes it's not in the moment, but people I feel safe with people who I know will say, Yes, I totally, you know, that it will hear me and see me. And I think that that is so much about what recovery is, right? We were, yeah, just, is not isolating and like we cannot do this alone. We can't 
recover all by ourselves. And yes, blanket forts help momentarily, but you can't blanket fort your way through recovery. No, totally. Exactly. I think that's one of the biggest things I sort of preach to people that I work with is just speaking your truth and getting honest about what's really coming up for you. And just like starting to learn about emotional intelligence and how to process things and how to feel things and to not feel shameful or or work through feeling shameful. You know, I like, I love the book Daring Greatly by Brene Brown Mm because that's what she talks about. She's a a shame researcher and that's her thing is like when you start talking about stuff and you start shining the light on it, it's no longer in the dark. It can't survive. And that was a really big thing throughout my recovery is really just learning how to open up and talk and be honest about how I was feeling and, you know, being willing to do things differently. You know, it was like when, after that day, when I surrendered and got on my hands and knees, I just opened up to being willing to do things differently. And I think that was a resolute commitment that I made that really set my recovery and sobriety into motion. And one of those things was being willing to get honest about how I was really feeling. (laughs) Yeah. I had one of those moments, but it wasn't when I was drinking. It was actually before that. So my, and and when people ask me about my bottom, I think it was even years before my drinking was sort of like, it was like this last ditch effort to hold on to any kind of addiction. But I think like my true bottom was when I started to get help for codependence and love addiction. So for Mm. me, the way that my kind of trajectory of addiction was, it started with codependence and love addiction, a little bit of an eating disorder, kind of like a side side on the plate. And then I got help for those with 12 step programs in about 2000. And when was that? 2006, I think. And then pretty much like, right. Like the next day I started drinking more. Right. (laughs) And immediately picked up. And then it was a very fast progression into 2011. So it was interesting. I do. I feel like it was that last thing I wanted to, to latch on to. And by, by that time, I, I already knew what recovery looked like. And I was kind of like, damn it, this is this is another thing I need to the last thing I need to tackle, hopefully the last thing. But my my bottom from codependence and love addiction was me on my bedroom floor in the fetal position after two back to back gnarly relationships. Mm. And yeah, that same thing, like getting on my knees, same thing. Like I didn't, I grew up and going to church, but at that point had, you know, asked a lot of questions and, you know, which they, they typically don't like at church and right. <laughs> and it kind of walked away from the quote unquote religion of it, but still had a spiritual foundation, thankfully. And I did the same thing. I was like, I don't know what is in store for me, but it, I know it's not this. And right. I'm willing to do, I'm listening is, is what I was saying. Like I'm listening, whatever it is that that you're trying to tell me I am ready. And that for me was surrender. That was giving up control because that's what codependence is all about. Like that is like just this unrelenting chronic control and being terrified of the uncertainty and the vulnerability of life and emotions and all of it. And I was so terrified of life. I was terrified that's a lot of where my addiction stemmed from. That's where my codependency was born, love addiction, drinking, all of it. I was terrified. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, I'm sure you realize this too, is just like talking to so many people is it's also intertwined. I feel Mm -hmm. like, you know, addiction, if you have that like addictive mind, and I think actually everybody has it that some people just don't realize they have it. So yeah, Yeah, we have those tendencies and it's all like all boils down to this like obsessive mind, you know? And so we try to control things and, um, there's the bad relationships and there's bad relationships with alcohol and all kinds of stuff. And it's all intertwined. Like I had a couple moments inside of my sobriety where like I had bad relationships and I couldn't believe what had happened and why didn't I know these things and why didn't I see this stuff? And those bad relationships after I had already gotten sober actually are what catapulted me into like deep spiritual work and personal development. And I actually had a period of time too, where I was like, I'm not dating anyone. Like I need to figure this out. Like, why do I keep allowing these kinds of people in my life? Um, you know, and I don't know if it was like a love addiction thing. It was more just like, um, I guess maybe it was, I, I don't, I haven't done a lot of work on that 
part of stuff, but it was more just like, I didn't really see people for who they were. I had these couple relationships where it was like, they were living a double life and I had no idea. Yeah. I just felt so naive to the whole thing. And so the relationship stuff, I had a moment like that too, where I was just like, I do not understand this God. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I'm sober and I'm still not picking the right things. And, uh, I had that like, you know, moment too, even inside of my sobriety. And so it's interesting cause, um, you know, like your story, my story, we have similar things along the path. It just happened in a different order. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that that's true for a lot of people and probably people that are listening to your podcast is just, you know, we all have these different things that happen on our path and all of our stories are are different and unique, but at the same time, we all experience very similar stuff and emotions. And, um, you know, I think for me, I've learned inside of recovery that it really kind of boils down to being mindful of how you're thinking of how you're feeling and then just having like new levels of emotional intelligence to be able to process through stuff that happens in life and not turning to numbing agents and escaping and coping mechanisms that don't serve you. Um, you know, so Yeah. I mean, I, one of the sayings that I love in recovery, they have a lot of sayings. Some of them are great (laughs) and funny and I love it works until it doesn't. And I think that, I think that most people listening to this either I have, have been in the place for a long time or are getting to that place where it's not working anymore. Cause I think for a lot of us, it works. I mean, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was great for a while. And then it was like, all right, this Mm -hmm. isn't great. Like, I think that was one of the turning points for me when I realized that I needed to get help when, when I realized like, this is not fun anymore. Yeah. This is freaking exhausting and I'm not enjoying this anymore, but now I don't know how to stop. I don't. And I can't do it by myself. Yeah, I've tried. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And then all those, you know, rules we put in place to like control the drinking or the using or whatever it is that don't work. Yeah. You know, it's like moderation to me was not in it's my really vocabulary torture for me. Yeah. Yeah. Forget that. No, I just, I can't, I know for sure that I cannot moderate. So I don't even try. Like I just, it's so much easier for me to just like eliminate it. Like, okay. Yeah. I just don't drink. I don't use drugs. Like I, and now it's just my lifestyle. It took a long time to, to work it, you know, towards yeah. that. But yeah, that was kind of the thing is like, it worked for a while and then it just wasn't working. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I did again. It's one of my favorite sayings. You know, moderation mm-hmm. is still really interesting to me. You know, I'm six plus years in and just you got yesterday, I went to a comedy show. We went and saw the liberal redneck in green. He was in Greensboro. With, it was so funny. Anyway, so we're, my, me and my husband are there with two other couples and my one friend, I'm sitting next to her and she was not driving and she ordered, no, she must have, she must have ordered the beer before I even sat down because they were there first and she drank her beer and then the waitress came over and asked her, do you want another round? And she looks at it and she's like, nah, no, I'll just have a mineral water. And I'm like, like still after all these years, I'm like, I know. like who goes to a comedy show who has like permission to drink? Yeah. <laughs> like, like, why me? would you do that? I would why would you like, have one? Three. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I don't like not see you for five minutes. <laughs> I mean, God bless their souls. If they can do that. Like I, my boyfriend, he can do that. Like he drinks and not very often, like he'll have a beer at dinner and then that's it. And I'm like, how do you do that? I don't understand. Yeah. Like, I don't either. I don't, I don't understand. I, I used to. I did. I was not always an alcoholic. I did before, like back when I was a mess with codependence and love addiction. But, and I was like, you were saying like, uh, you know, just your regular old run of the mill binge drinker on the weekends. But like during the week I could kind of take it or leave it, but mm-hmm. it's still fascinating to me. Anyway, I, I wanted to ask you about, we sort of mentioned high functioning alcoholism and addiction. Yes. And that's really been the theme for probably most of the people I've, I've brought on the show. And I think for most of the people listening to this, it's all about that, that, you know, looking fine on the outside, probably most people don't know that they have a problem. So my question for you is how can we spot this either in ourselves and even like when we see it, when we might be seeing with other people, with people that we care about, what do you feel like is the best way to help those people? 
Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, gosh, this is such a like touchy subject. I feel like, because like, if you yourself are the high functioner, I think the main thing is like, you feel this cognitive dissonance, right? So it's like, you're thinking one thing, but you're doing another. So that's like the big red flag there is where like, you're telling yourself, I'm not going to drink today. I'm not going to use today. And then later that afternoon, you're at happy hour, you know? And so there's this incongruence of like what you're thinking and wanting to do and then like what actions you're actually taking. And so, you know, I always tell people like everybody wears addiction differently, whether it's addiction to alcohol or drugs or love or, you know, sex, gambling, whatever you want to call it. Like we all wear it different ways, but at the end of the day, however you're wearing it, high functioning or just, you know, a little bit more obvious, Mm -hmm. it feels the same on the inside, you know? And so like, if you're feeling shame and guilt and you're waking up in the morning, like, I did it again. Like what's wrong with you? And that self-talk is real negative. I think that's a big red flag, you know, and I want to talk to you in this same conversation about, you know, being a high functioning person. Like a lot of the times people wait to get help because they think they have to reach this, this bottom. Yeah. They think that they have to get the DUI three times. They think that they have to, you know, have their kids have taken away them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or have an intervention or something. And I think that's like a really big, big thing that we need to tackle in this recovery space is that you do not have to wait to hit this proverbial rock bottom before you decide to change your life, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think those things are kind of intertwined because if you're a high functioning person and you're high functioning with your addictions, like you're not going to think you have a problem. That's the nature of the beast. Right. And so I think that's the scary part too, is that a lot of people continue with their bad habits because, they get things done. And, Mm -hmm. but at the same time on the inside, it's just gut wrenching. Like you just feel so incongruent with what you really want to be doing, but you don't know how to stop. And so that's like the side of the coin of like, if you yourself are the high functioner. And then I think like, if you have someone who is a high functioning alcoholic or addict, I don't like to use those words, but like a high functioning person with an unhealthy relationship Mm -hmm. with alcohol or drugs. Yeah, that's a tricky one. You know, it's like, there were so many times where people pulled me to the side and I guess they were identifying it in me, but I wasn't ready to hear it. I wasn't ready to like take that on. And to the point where I would even cut people off, like, don't you dare tell me I have a problem, Mm -hmm. you know? And so that's a really, really hard one to tackle with someone in your life. That's maybe a high functioning person with an issue, you know, but I think, at least for me now, like inside of my recovery and just working with people, I can spot it from a mile away. Whereas, <laughs> you know, if you're still drinking yourself, you're not really going to be able to see it as much, you know? And so I think it's a, it's a tricky thing when someone that you love and care about or a friend is struggling, you can see it even though they can't, you know, I think the biggest thing is we have to be compassionate and we have to remember that like, you can't force sobriety on somebody, you know, it's gotta be a decision that they make for themselves and you can politely and gently and gracefully nudge them and let them know that you're there for them and try to point them in the right direction. Like, Hey, read this blog or watch this Ted talk or, Mm -hmm. you know, help plant the seeds. But ultimately at the end of the day, especially for a high functioning person, because because most of the time those people also have perfectionism and control tendencies, they got to make the decision on their own. And that's what was true for me. You know, I just, I wasn't ready to hear it until I heard it myself. Yeah. You know, it, the voice inside of me was saying it, not the voices around me. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. I think that it is one of those things where I think even just showing and modeling a strong recovery Never think that that isn't going unnoticed, even if it's on like an unconscious level from the person that you're hoping will get help. I know the person that I came out to first was someone that I knew had several years of recovery and I just knew that it would be a safe place. I was, there was still a part of me that was afraid she would like judge me, but she didn't. She was totally fine. (laughs) It wasn't, there was no drama, but yeah, that's, it's always, I think that, you know, it's one of those things that people are are kind of curious about who might be listening. And, and, and too, I want to say something when you, when you said, you know, you don't particularly like those words like alcoholic and, and, or, 
or um, addict. I, I think that there's a lot of people listening. Like I had, I had one woman on Tiffany Hahn a couple of weeks ago and she was, she doesn't identify as an alcoholic. And, and I don't think that, I don't think it's black or white. Like, I don't think that you need to admit that you are an alcoholic with a capital A or an addict and then walk into recovery and sobriety. I think, you know, for her, she, like you were saying, she knew she had an unhealthy relationship with alcohol. She didn't like, like the progression of it. So she said, you know what? I am going to, I am going to pledge for, I'm going to do 365 days of no drinking. And she said she knew like one or two weeks in that she needed to abstain like forever. So I, and I think that's so admirable and just really, again, like paying attention to what your intuition is saying. And she's still, she's like, I don't know if I'm an alcoholic, but she just knows her life is so much better not drinking. Exactly. And that's what I tell people like this, this whole stigma around the words alcoholic and addict and like even some of like the stigma that's sort of been built with some of the 12 step stuff of like, you know, hiding and not telling people and, you know, not speaking out about it. Like it kind of drives me crazy to be honest, because it is not serving the people who do have an issue with drinking or using drugs because they'd rather do that than, than take on the labels, you know? And so, um, I actually wrote a blog about that, about, you know, you don't have to wear a label. All you need to identify is that if you quit drinking and you feel better, that's all you need to worry about is like, mm-hmm. how does it make you feel? Yes. Cause at the end of the day, if you're drinking and it's making you feel like crap and it's making you feel like less of a person and you're not happy with yourself, that's all you need to know. Like who cares about the label? Like all you really need to know is this doesn't make me feel good, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's all you need to tell people. You don't have to say, I'm an alcoholic and I can't drink. It's just like, no, I'm choosing not to drink because it doesn't make me feel good. Yeah. And you know, like I think not to knock AA, like I know it works for a lot of people. It just wasn't part of my path. And, um, I tried it, you know, I went, but I just felt very disempowering. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to trade like my drinking and using for meetings. And I didn't like that. They sort of preach like, well, if you don't come, you're going to fall off the wagon or if you don't do this or all that stuff. And like, it just didn't resonate for me. And I get it. Like some people need that, you know, sense of like regimen and like accountability. And I agree, you need accountability in in your recovery. But for me, it was like, no, I want to feel empowered. Like choosing not to drink and going against the norm is not a bad thing. Like it's a pretty freaking awesome thing. And I've written about that a lot too, of just like how sobriety has been one of the most epic adventures of my life. Um, yeah. And it's awesome. So like, you know, forget about the labels. I think, um, we have a lot of work to do with breaking the stigma around what it means to have a substance use disorder and struggle with substances. And, yeah. um, you know, I think there's a lot of work to be done so that people feel comfortable changing their lives and not afraid to talk about it and not afraid to tell people that they don't drink because it doesn't make them feel good. Yeah. Not because they have to wear some label that is disempowering in my opinion, because that does not, that just perpetuates the problem. Right. Exactly. And, And it keeps people drinking because it's like, it's easier to drink than put on this label. And it's just like, our society is so crazy. It's like, you have to be, you have to drink the perfect amount to be like, not in the gray area of like, okay, well, if you drink too much, you're an alcoholic. And if you don't drink at all, you're freaking weird. Like (laughs) there has to be this happy medium. And like, it just, that doesn't work. Yeah. It's not working. I, I had a great conversation with Arlena Allen about what we're just talking about and reforming Alcoholics Anonymous and and all of that. So I'll link up to that in the show notes. And I, I wish we weren't out of time, but we are. And I just, I'm so grateful for this conversation, Carly. Thank you so much for sharing your story and your wisdom around this. And do you have any final thoughts for our listeners today? You know, I think the main thing on this topic of, you know, getting sober and recovery, I think the biggest thing, which is what I'm starting to teach people a lot now is like, for me, it comes down to, living intentionally Mm -hmm. and coming into more of an awareness with yourself of like what your thoughts are and, you know, the voice in your head that's telling you to drink. And I think for me, like that was one of the biggest things is just raising the awareness in my mind 
and like having a conversation with myself. So if people are listening and they're struggling and they're, you know, having a a bad relationship with any kind of addiction, I think that would probably be my number one thing is just start tuning into your thoughts. You know, I read a book in the beginning of my recovery called rational recovery. It was one of those books where it was like, take what you like, leave what you don't. Mm -hmm. And one of the things in that book he taught was active voice recognition technique. And that's what it was. It was like really paying attention to the conversations that we're having in our head around drinking, around our self-talk, around everything. And I think that's really what it boils down to is just living an intentional life because when you get clear on like what your intentions are, it's a game changer. And part of that is being mindful of, you know, the thoughts that you're having and the voices that are going on in your head and really being able to change that conversation. And that's kind of what a lot of my work is all about with Miracles Are Brewing is just learning how to live a more intentional life. And I think that can be a very good foundation and entry point into recovery. Mm-hmm. Yes, girl. Yes. (laughs) Thank you. And we will link up to Carly's website in the show notes for everyone who wants to go and find out more about you and learn more about recovery. I think that it's such a great, you know, if you are listening religiously to this recovery series, I think that the more people that you can surround yourself with online who talk about this work, I think the better. So thank you so much for being here, Carly. And thank you listeners for being with me here week after week. I know right now I'm doing two episodes a week. Thank you so, so, so much. And if you have not yet purchased my book, How to Stop Feeling Like Shit, 14 Habits That Are Holding You Back from Happiness, please do so. And I'm offering a free four-week class. It's like a book study and I'm guiding you, uh, book study with the author type of thing. You can still join us for free. And the link for that will be in the show notes as well. Thank you again for being here in this little corner of the internet. And until next time, I will see you out in cyberspace. Bye-bye. Thanks, Andrea. Bye. Hey, ass kickers, you know what would help me out so much if you left a rating and review for this podcast. Your Kick-Ass Life podcast will always be free to you and to help me get more awesome guests and to spread the word, it helps tremendously if you leave a rating and a review. Now, they don't particularly make this super easy to do, so I'll help you out a little. If you're in iTunes and you're on your phone, when you are in the podcast app, you need to search for Your Kick-Ass Life podcast. I know, even if you're subscribed, this is how you do it. So when you search for it and you see it come up, click on the cover art, then towards the top where it says reviews, click that, scroll down a tiny little bit, and then click write a review. Stitcher is a bit easier if you're on Android. The easiest way I found to do this is to type into Google stitcher.com, your kick-ass life, and voila, my podcast should pop up as the first link. Scroll down and click write a review. That's it. Thank you so very much. You have no idea how much it helps me when you do that. All right. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.